Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, the podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is attorney Tara Aaron Stelludo, a partner at Aaron Sanders Law in Nashville, Tennessee, and a certified information privacy professional in both U.S. and EU law. We will discuss recent developments in regulation of the internet and privacy law, especially in relation to intellectual property. So welcome to the show, Tara. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Yeah. So I, I, for, for listeners who might not be familiar with your practice, I wonder if you could start by just saying a little bit about yourself, what you do, and what Aaron Sanders Law does as well. Sure. So Aaron Sanders Law, I'll start with that one, is an intellectual property technology and privacy law firm in Nashville. Um, we consist of two partners. Um, my partner, Rick Sanders, is the litigator. And I do everything that doesn't involve going to court. Uh, so I handle um, a wide range of transactional work. I also do trademark prosecution, um, which is trademark registration and protection. And then um, I've always been in the privacy space in terms of drafting privacy policies for, for websites. Um, but it really wasn't until 2018 um, when the GDPR came into effect, it came into effect in May of 2018. That's the general data protection regulation out of the EU. And it does affect U.S. companies. So I started getting calls from my clients saying, hey, can you review this data protection agreement for me? And then all of a sudden, I was just sort of eating and breathing privacy law and particularly European privacy law. <laughs> um, so that started in 2018 and I've kind of not let go of it since then. Mm. Well, so among other things, you sent me a really interesting article you wrote for the trademark uh, reporter on the general data protection regulation or, or GDPR. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what the GDPR is, what it was intended to do, and maybe what kinds of problems it seems to be creating for the companies and individuals it, it purports to regulate. Sure. So I don't want to get too into the weeds with history, but I will say that the, uh, the European Union has been well ahead of the United States for a long time with respect to privacy regulation. And they had a uh, EU-wide directive um, as far back as 1995 that talked about the way that companies um, could process, um, meaning you know, use or share consumers' information, but also um, specifically governing how it got um, shared across borders within the EU. Um, the GDPR in 2018 was kind of a modernization of that 1995 directive. So um, there had been a lot of friction in business that the directive had caused. And one of the things that the EU tried to do was sort of smooth that out and make um, cross-border transfers of information um, easier for business. Um, but also recognizing that there has been an exponential growth in the amount and quality of information that businesses have about consumers and thinking about how to give consumers some control over what's done with their information. So those are really the two, um, initially the two balancing principles of the GDPR is uh, control over information by consumers, but also ease of cross-border transfers and the free, free flow of information among businesses. 
So I wonder if you could talk then a little bit about the kinds of problems or issues that the GDPR is creating for your clients, because I understand that, that, you know, because of this kind of regulation, it can create certain issues for, for people who are transacting in information relating to individuals in the EU. I think uh, it has been so. So my experience with U.S. clients has been the following: so uh, a a U.S. company that's doing, let's say, e-commerce, will have a client in France. Let's say they're a cheese shop in France who uh, uh, sells their product all over the world, including to American customers. Uh, and so they have this e-commerce uh, platform that's in the United States. But that e-commerce platform also processes their credit card transactions from their European customers. So the cheese shop will say to this e-commerce platform, we need to have a data protection agreement because you need to agree to certain standards in terms of how you are protecting the information that I'm giving you about my customers. Uh, so I wouldn't say that it really creates problems so much as it does additional obligations that didn't exist before, the GDPR is fairly clear about this kind of thing anyway. It certainly has its ambiguities, um, but the data protection agreement idea, I think, was was pretty well understood in Europe and is now coming to the United States, but the agreements are almost prescribed in the regulations. So a lot of the, or at least in the uh, guidelines to the regulations, um, some of the supporting documentation. So the language that we put into these agreements is almost cut and pasted from government documents, um, which makes them, I mean, there's still friction that gets caused in terms of negotiating some of the provisions, but a lot of it, it's almost like, you know, a business associate agreement under HIPAA where it sort of is what it is to a large extent. Um, so I don't know that the GDPR is causing a huge number of problems as opposed to just new regulations for clients who are experiencing it that way. Now, um, for clients who have direct contact with European consumers, um, you know, any, all of big tech, you know, any of the big social media companies, um, they've had to, you know, implement some major new technology in order to deal with deletion and excess requests um, that these customers are putting forth. That was something that Americans didn't have the right to do, at least until we got the California Consumer Privacy Act, you know, at the start of this year. So it certainly made them more accountable to their consumers. Uh, and I suppose a business can, you know, look at that and say that it's a problem. I think if you're on the consumer side, you see this is a very good thing. Um, a lot of the, but a lot of the problems I think are showing themselves in the way that they, that the European law interacts with us law. So for example, um, U.S. discovery laws in litigation um, may require uh, a company to hold on to information um, in violation of its normal or in contravention anyway of its normal data retention policy. 
the GDPR requires that data be deleted after it's not needed anymore, um, not needed for the processing of that information. But if you need to hold on to it because you're in a litigation hold, are you now somehow violating the GDPR? So there are going to be some issues around um, conflict of law between uh, the obligations under the GDPR and various obligations under the U.S. law. Um, I think from a consumer perspective, the biggest problem with the GDPR so far is that there hasn't been a lot of enforcement going on. Um, There's a lot of information coming out now about how there's been something like 160,000 reports of data breaches and only a handful of um, fines have actually been issued at this point. Uh, And one of the points that's being made is, look, these companies are making so much money violating the GDPR that by the time the fine comes around, it's almost a drop in the bucket compared to what they've made, you know, in the time that they were getting away with it. So I think that there is definitely um, room for improvement. But I wouldn't say that the GDPR caused massive problems so much as additional obligations that one could argue a company should have been doing anyway. So when clients come to you with questions about the GDPR and their compliance with its requirements, do you find that there are kind of particular issues that tend to come up or particular kinds of advice that you give them commonly? In other words, like sort of what, if you were to sort of like set out the most important things that companies ought to know about the GDPR uh, and their compliance with it, what might those be? Yeah. So the basic framework of the GDPR is that it lays out six legitimate bases under which information of European Union, it's not really citizens, it's people in the EU. That's one of the ambiguities is exactly who this applies to. Um, But if you are processing information of people in the EU, you have to do so under one of six legitimate bases. And these are things like you have their consent, or you have a contract with them that requires the processing of their information, or you are satisfying a legal obligation. And then there are some sort of governmental kinds of bases like public safety, national security, et cetera. And then there's one that's called the legitimate interest of the processor. There's been a lot of debate in the privacy world about how much companies should rely on this last provision, legitimate interest of the processor, which sort of sounds like a catch-all. Like if you can't figure out how you fall under any of the other bases for which you're allowed to process information, you can just use this one because after all, it's in your legitimate interest. Each one of these bases has a different um, uh, consequences in terms of when a consumer can uh, withdraw that basis or, or cancel that basis. So example, they can withdraw consent. Uh, Obviously, if they cancel the contract um, with the legitimate interest basis, that legitimate interest has to be demonstrated um, and it has to include having done a data impact assessment so that you know that the interest of the processor actually outweighs the interest of the data subject in terms of processing that information. So it's not really the catch-all that it seems to be. So figuring out exactly what bases it is that a company is using to process information and then clearly communicating that to consumers. Um, One of the uh, 
rights that a consumer has or a data subject has under the GDPR is to have uh, transparent information about what's being done with their information and why. Um, and so I guess one of, one of the challenges really has been um, redrafting privacy notices in a way that lay out all the information that the GDPR wants, which of course has now been made even more complicated by the fact that we are having to go back and do it all over again because of this new uh, California law. Mm. Well, putting on your, your kind of policy hat, um, in your experience sort of working with and advising clients about the GDPR, do you think that European law with respect to online privacy has interesting or valuable lessons to teach U.S. lawmakers about how we might think about uh, the privacy of American consumers? I do. I hadn't really thought about it like this before. Uh, I think that the... Um, so, for example, one of the things that the GDPR does is divide responsibility up between the data controller, who in my cheese shop example would be the cheese merchant who's actually collecting information from the, cost the cheese customers, and then the data processor, who in my example was my client, who was the credit card processor in the United States. Um, what that does is allow people to know where they stand in terms of their uh, relationship to the information all the way through the stream of commerce. And one of the things that we've been seeing with the U.S. laws that have been coming out is that it's very clear what um, what the GDPR would call data controllers are supposed to do with information. It's less clear what the obligations are more downstream. And I think that that's something that U.S. lawmakers can definitely think about. Um, one of the things that the CCPA, um, the California Consumer Protection Act, borrowed almost wholesale from the GDPR was this list of rights that consumers have. So consumers have the right to have access to their information and to know who it's been shared with, um, to make any corrections to it that need to be made. Um, they have the right to ask for it to be deleted um, which presents some interesting challenges around database integrity and um, knowing where that information is stored in all cases um, and where all the various copies of certain information is stored so that it can be deleted. Um, so I guess when you ask me, you know, what the problems were that were created, I'm coming up with them now, even if I said before that there were no problems. Um yeah. Well, I know that you also have thoughts about what a lot of people refer to as like the Internet of Things and sort of the increasing presence of different kinds of information gathering and disseminating devices that people include in, in their homes. Are there issues you think uh, in that sphere that we should be particularly uh, aware of and thinking about in terms of future regulatory approaches? Absolutely. This is, uh, this is just frustrating beyond, beyond the telling of it. Um, and I don't consider myself a consumer advocate specifically, but ultimately what I'm concerned about is being able to explain clear regulations to my clients. I think compliance is good for everyone across the board. I think clear rules are good for everyone across the board. And the rules can't be clear if everyone's not playing by the same ones. 
And these, um, uh, so the ring devices, for example, um, and sort of the, you know, the privacy horror stories that we've heard about them being hacked and people not knowing that they've been recorded and then all that information being shared with law enforcement, for example, um, this goes back to uh, the issue of data subjects knowing what's being done with their information. Um, and in a lot of cases, the homeowners don't know what's being done with that information because the notices aren't clear. Um, and I think that we need to get a lot more serious about making sure that if people have their information collected, that they know that it's been collected and they know why and what it's being used for. And we have the tools in the U.S. jurisprudence to do this. Certainly, the California law has a lot to say about uh, the selling of information, um, which the California law defines the sale of information very broadly. And I think that people are so with Ring and now this horrible story that came out in the New York Times the other day about this company called Clearview AI that's scraping all of our public photos from social media sites and giving it to law enforcement. Well, they're selling it to law enforcement and everyone's getting caught up in the fact that, oh, well, it's been being used for crime prevention and national security and all this. But that's not really the point. The point is that this private company sold that information and it doesn't matter that they sold it to law enforcement. That's the California Act says that if you sell information, you first of all have to disclose that. And second of all, you have to give the data subjects the right to opt out of it. Not only that, but I think that we can think about the idea of our information being used without our knowledge and without our consent um, as just a plain old deceptive act. And the Federal Trade Commission has the power um, under Section 5 to uh, go after companies who are committing unfair and deceptive practices uh, with respect to the use of personal information. Um, and I think that, you know, being a, a completely under the radar company, like what this Clearview AI was, the story was just in the New York Times four days ago. You can look it up. And I think a bunch of other publications have picked it up right now if you're not a subscriber to the, to the New York Times. But this company was, um, you know, sort of an under the radar, um, you know, they didn't really have an internet presence. Um, their founder was going by a, a fake name on LinkedIn. Um, and in the meantime, they were scraping data, um, also in violation of Facebook's terms of use off of Facebook, off of Venmo, off of all kinds of social media sites. Um, and connecting it with whatever other information that they could find publicly about people to create a database of millions and millions of people where um, pulling up their photo would show a whole collection of other photos about them, their name, and very often their address and who their contacts were. Um, we had no idea that this was being done. And it, it seems like a really huge thing that, you know, maybe we've just kind of let the technology out there in the world and there's nothing we can do to stop it now. But the truth is we already have in the law, the tools that we need to, uh, to frankly, just put a stop to it. Um, at least, you know, to find the company significantly, but I think also to just, you know, shut it down. Well, so changing directions a little, Tara, I've been following you and Rick on uh, Twitter for a long time, and I always learn a ton from the both of you, uh, often about intellectual property related subjects, but also about 
about privacy law. And I know a lot of your practice is focused in those two areas. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the intersection of the two. In other words, what are sort of the top privacy issues for your intellectual property clients? Yeah, I think... So I talked about this in Berlin in October. Um, I got to speak at the Pharmaceutical Trademark Group uh, conference to a room full of in-house pharma people about how these new privacy laws were going to come up against the kinds of private investigations that pharma does against counterfeits, which is also obviously very important, right? They, I mean, counterfeits and drugs is one of the most dangerous things going on in the world right now. Um, but it's it's not entirely clear under either the GDPR or the CCPA what the limits are to private investigations. So investigations being done by private companies against individuals um, who may be um, you know involved in counterfeit or trademark investigations. Um, there's been some really interesting work done on the issue of private companies sharing information with, um, uh, with, with public entities. So, um, you know, a pharma company getting law enforcement involved and sharing information that way. Um, I think before there was no question that, you know, this was all right, Um, both the CCPA and the GDPR have sort of a general exemption for preventing fraud. Um, but it's the limits of what that prevention exemption are, haven't really been tested yet. So uh, I think that companies who are investigating counterfeit or trademark investigation, first and foremost, have to remember that the bad guys are data subjects too. (laughs) and remember that they are processing their information and think about, you know, how they might have to notify them about that, for example. Um, So that's certainly going to be a challenge that's created in the trademark space specifically. Um, And this is what that article was that I sent to you. Uh, uh, It used to be that if you were looking to find out who owned a domain name that infringed on a trademark, um, or was cyber squatting or was passing off or any of those things, you could go to the Whois database on any of the domain name registries. You could type in the domain name and you would get um, a uh, company contact, a technical contact, and an administrative contact um, that you could then send, at least send a cease and desist letter to. It didn't always work, but at least you knew who they were. Um When the GDPR came into effect, there was a whole big conversation between the European Data Protection Board that's in charge of the GDPR and ICANN, who's in charge of the WHOIS databases, about whether or not those databases could remain open, whether or not the personal information, at least of people in the EU, could still be listed on on these WHOIS databases um, in a public-facing way. And the answer ended up being no. So now if you go to type in a domain name into any of these WHOIS databases, what you get is a screen that says that it was redacted for privacy. And you'll get this certainly with respect to domain names that are owned by EU citizens. But um, I think these registries just came to the conclusion that it was a lot easier um, to not worry about where a particular 
um, domain name owner lived and just redact the whole database. So now um, it doesn't matter where they are. You're, you're getting, you know, 95% of the time, at least, um, you're getting this uh, redacted for privacy screen instead of information about who the domain name owner is. Um, and that means that that's true in, you know, places in the world where we tend to see cyber squatters so, um, and not just, you know, in, in Western Europe. So um, that's been really frustrating. I mean, on the other hand, there were these privacy shields that people could buy to be hidden behind, you know, long before this GDPR problem came up. Um, so, you know, some of these problems aren't entirely new, um, but I think that there is, there's a lot, um, there are a lot of questions that still remain, and I think that there's a lot of work to be done, and I'm starting to do some work in this area, but I haven't really done it yet, um, in terms of the um, range of conflict between these new data protection laws and um and what it's going to do to people doing trademark investigations and other kinds of IP investigations. But more than that, I think, um, you know, for brands who are particularly concerned about protecting their trademarks, um, it's ultimately a question of goodwill. Um, brands for a long time have known that consumers care about things like the environment and human rights and corporate social responsibility and I think data protection is going to be the next big thing that consumers really care about. Um, so it's for them, it's about, again, you know, having clear rules that they um, can comply with and that they can use that in a way uh, to enhance trust with their consumer base. Well, so, so Tara, um, I know that a lot of my students and I'm guessing students at other schools sort of think of becoming a lawyer as like going to a big firm and going to court. And you've taken a really interesting uh, alternative path in your legal career, from what I understand, uh, that I think a lot of them might find really appealing. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and sort of how you found yourself doing the kind of work that you're doing today. Sure. I don't know that um, the start of my path anyway was really all that unique. So I graduated from law school and I went to a big firm in Nashville, um, uh, but I was never on the litigation track. I, I never wanted to go to court. <laughs> so I, I w I've been in transactional work since the beginning. And if, and if law students don't know that that's a possibility, um, I find it really interesting. Um, it does not in any way mean that you don't get to argue with other lawyers. Um, I, you know, spent the first seven years or so of my con of my practice um, negotiating, you know, major technology agreements, um, and a lot of that time spent yelling at lawyers on the other side, so and arguing, you know, at least in email like crazy about an indemnification clause or a warranty provision, which sounds pretty geeky, but you know, if you went to law school because you were good at arguing. Um, uh, litigation is not the only option for you. Um, and I think that transactional work um, allows you the option to think about, um, you know, a wide range of issues um, and learn a lot about clients' business. Um, but a transactional practice can include all kinds of things. It's not just uh, license or agreement negotiations. So that meant that I was also in the trademark uh, prosecution department. Um, so I did a lot of applications and, you know, 
prosecution meetings, seeing through to registration of trademark applications. I did some copyright registration work. Um, and then about eight years into my career at big law, um, I kind of decided that there might be another option and that there were a lot of smaller companies that, um, maybe, well, just frankly couldn't afford to work with big law, but we're doing some really interesting things. And so, um, my partner, Rick Sanders and I, um, kind of both saw that happening at the same time and decided that we wanted to go after that growing market um, here in Nashville. And uh, so we started Aaron Sanders back in 2011 and have been doing it, gosh, almost, almost 10 years now. So um, I think, I think going out on your own straight out of law school is a really scary proposition, although folks do it all, you know, all the time. Um, I really appreciated the fact that I had eight years of, um, you know, the big law experience with smart lawyers around me who could kind of teach me how to practice law before I had to go out and also learn how to run a business. It's hard to learn how to do both of those things at the same time. Um, but, uh, and in terms of, you know, getting into, I mean, sort of morphing into a privacy lawyer from, you know, just a kind of straight up transactional lawyer, um, it was about, you know, being in the right place at the right time to a certain extent, but it's also about paying attention to the trends and, you know, listening to what your clients are asking for and knowing what's coming down the pike um, from a legal perspective that's interesting to you. Um, and this one was just, you know, it was an easy thing to see coming. Um, and so I kind of jumped on it. And then once I did, there were a lot of opportunities for personal advancement in this field in terms of getting my certification. Um, I would give yourself a couple years after the bar exam before you do certification in US or EU law um, or do it all at the same time. I don't know, but um, uh, getting the certification, but then also um, just writing and producing content as much as I possibly could. Um, I wrote that article for the trademark reporter, um, which is how I got the speaking gig in Berlin last year, um, you know, which has led to all kinds of interesting work. So um, it's, it's a question of um, paying attention to what's coming, um, jumping on it as much as you can, you know, as quickly as you can, and then um, embracing it full throttle and doing everything that you can to make yourself stick out in that field. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Tara. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to you about these issues and, and learned a lot about EU privacy and data protection law, about which I knew very little before the call. Excellent. Well, this was fun. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Brian. i